The Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Okay, it's great to be with you guys, and I hope that you are ready. Hope you have your helmets on, or maybe your steel-toed boots, because we're talking about pride, and I might be stepping on some toes here, so be very careful, and I hope that uh, hope we can leave here friends, uh, because pride might be, for some of you, kind of the sin in your life, the thing that makes life go uh, offline and in weird directions, uh, but it may not be the main thing for all of us, but it's certainly a thing. Uh, and this is true wherever we're coming from on the spiritual spectrum. And we're going to do two weeks on pride. And this morning we are using Luke to kind of help us see the, the big picture, the, the meta facets of pride, if you will, that keep us pursuing the, the least threatening, the most comfortable ways of satisfying our hunger for God, ways that we seek out salvation that actually preserves our power, preserves our status, the things that we hold on to. Now, I was sitting on uh, my back deck yesterday, um, writing my, uh, well, finishing my sermon, just polishing it up, you know, uh, and making some changes, and I realized that I didn't have a real good, like, tie-in, an anecdote or an illustration to kind of explain what I was looking for, so I took a break, and I walked in, and um, Elliot 
it's just he and I uh, this weekend because everyone else is gone. Um, and he was watching um, The Office. And he's on his, I think, his second time through. Uh, we all watched it the first time through. But if he's in front of the TV, it's either Fortnite, playing games, or it's watching The Office. And he was watching the episode um, called China. And uh, this is the one where Michael comes back into the office. Michael Scott is the boss. Um, I'll try not to give spoilers to those of you who haven't watched TV in the last 15 years. But he's the, the boss of the office, and he's kind of the bumbling idiot. And uh, he comes back from the dentist holding this Newsweek magazine, and it's all in red, and it says, China as the emerging superpower. And I thought, oh, thank you, Jesus. Here we go. This is the illustration I've been looking for. I kind of remembered the episode. But Michael comes in, and he's read this Newsweek article at the dentist because a child was reading the magazine he normally reads. I don't know what that would be, maybe highlights or something. And he was forced to read Newsweek. And he understands now that, the, that America's status as the number one superpower is under threat. And he comes in and picks up stuff on Pam's desk, and he's looking, and they're all made in China. And he becomes even more concerned. And he says this to the office, my whole life, I believed that America was number one. That was, that was the saying, not America is number two. England is number two. China should be like eight. And so as the boss of this paper company, he gives them this mental exercise to do. I want you to imagine a world in which America is not the number one superpower, where forks are irrelevant and where every man, woman, and child is expected to learn how to play the cello. It's a little light racial stereotyping there, uh, but it's allowed because Michael Scott is an idiot. But he says, what do we do? How do we stop this? How do we protect our status as Number one, that's his interest as the boss of this paper company, presuming that these people can do that. And he then gets into this extended debate with Oscar, the gay Mexican, who's apparently the smartest guy in the office, and he debates him about population stats. And so Michael's sense of cultural superiority is just being challenged from all kinds of directions. And, of course, the episode is satirizing Michael's and presumably the viewer's sense of superiority by virtue of being born as a white male American, particularly white male Americans, but all of us who probably were born or grew up here, and how this cultural national pride that we have just by growing up in a particular country, it's satirizing that. And and it's satirizing the mythology that surrounds that idea of being number one, and that we have to be number one. And that's a problem as we open up the Bible, as we open up the gospel of Luke particularly, because in Luke's gospel, in fact, in all of the gospels, it's the number ones who always are missing the point. The number ones are the ones who are made examples of. And we read over and over again this warning of how cultural, religious, political, theological status and pride creates this hidden hermeneutic that we don't necessarily recognize 
and which keeps us from seeing the real issue, keeps us from reading the text rightly, and not only missing the little interpretive details, but missing the big picture, missing, in fact, the gospel itself. And in a sense, then, pride is everyone's chief sin. In a sense, it's the unforgivable sin. Not because God is unwilling to forgive, but because pride keeps us from ever thinking to ask for forgiveness. And it helps us maintain a lack of scrutiny towards all of the ways in which our our personal, our religious, our financial advantages, our racial advantages, keep us from hearing the upside-down good news of the gospel. And so there's three people, or three groups, the third one is a group, in this narrative. And these are the people who get it, in quotes. So how do we get it? And it's narrated in these three anecdotes. And the first person is the thief. And the thief is the one of the two that's crucified on either side of Jesus. But here's the thing that you need kind of a a commentary to know is that stealing, the bare act of taking something, is, is not a capital offense. And so there's no reason for these two thieves to be crucified by Jesus. Among execution methods, crucifixion was the big gun. This was a complex sort of social and political ritual. It was a, it was a spectacle to make sure that everyone witnessing made the conclusion, don't be that guy. Don't be an enemy of the state. Crucifixion was reserved for people with big crimes that Rome felt threatened by, that they felt it undermined their crime, that is, the social order of the empire. And so it stands to reason, then, that the two guys that are crucified on either side of them are not up there because they, you know, took the five-finger discount on a loaf of bread. They are very, very bad people. Thief number one, the one in the story who hears, who sees, who gets it, he's a very, very bad dude. He's not a number one. But he disciplines his pride enough to see, to hear, to get who Jesus really is. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, what, are, what other choice does he have? You know, he's a, he's a criminal. He's being executed. But that's the point, right? That is the point. Coming to Jesus surely looks appealing when your life choices have led you to execution. And that's our defense, but that is the point. Why would anyone trust a Savior on a cross unless your station of life had sunk so low that that now made sense? And that's also why thief number two gets a role in the play, or very, very bad guy number two. Because by contrast, he's not reflecting upon his life choices and having a change of heart. But he's saying, 
hey, Jesus, if you've got some, you know, special magical space dust, now's the time to sprinkle it around. And don't forget me. He is basically playing the odds. Just in case Jesus is who he says he is, I want to make sure that he puts a good word in with the big guy upstairs. This isn't humility. This is playing the odds. But thief number one, the one that Luke is billboarding for us, hey, look at this guy. Remember his story? He's on a cross, and he's putting his hopes in someone else who's on a cross. And this sort of thing is utter nonsense to people in power. Persons of means, persons of connections, persons who live in the greatest nation on the face of the earth. People for whom that's their one of their foundational identities. Don't look at a Savior on the cross and say, I want that. Who gets it in Luke's gospel? Lowlifes get it. Those on a cross who aren't saying, well, the Romans got it wrong and what I did wasn't so bad. Thief number one says that I am being punished justly. He's there because of his own life choices. And he doesn't deflect, he doesn't blame shift, he owns it, and so he sees. The second guy, the second character is the centurion, and this is verse 47. He's seen what had happened, that is, the events of the crucifixion, praised God and said, surely this is a righteous man. Now, the thief was a moral outsider. The centurion is a racial, ethnic religious outsider because he's a Gentile. He's unclean according to Jewish law. And more than that, he's a soldier, part of the occupying force of the Roman Empire that occupies Jewish land. Centurions, you know, weren't known for hooking their wagon to Jewish rabbis and their teaching. They were there to make sure that that teaching didn't spread too far or cause too much social unrest. But Luke says when, when he observes what's happening, he doesn't say, score one more for Rome. He doesn't say, we are the champions. That's not what he sings. He doesn't sing at all. That was just, you know, an added bonus for you. But he says, not we're number one, and this proves it again. But he praised, praised Yahweh. He praised the king of the Jews being killed. He praised the God of the Jews whose emissary is on a cross. It's profoundly absurd. To praise God in this instance is for him to repudiate everything about his national mythology. Everything about what gives him a job and gives him special status in the Roman Empire and gives him the ability to boss people around, praising Yahweh in this circumstance, praising Jesus, repudiates everything about his story, everything he knows about crime and punishment and law and order. It's to renounce everything he knows about how power works and how authority works. You see, for him... And for us, to some degree, kings assert, 
Kings dominate. Kings take over. Kings get the minions of the world to do their bidding for them. This king, the one on the cross, he gives up his life so that the minions of the world can prosper. The minions of the world can live. But to see this, to hear this, we have to disown our own advantage. We have to disown all of the status lines of meaning that we construct our world around, that we construct our lives around, that keeps us at the center. We have to forsake the mythology of being number one. And then there's a third group, and that's the women. And this is verses 56, 55 and 56. The women who had come with Jesus saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. And then in the next chapter, we're told that they go and bear witness to the male disciples. And the male disciples, of course, don't believe them. They think they're delusional. They think they're speaking nonsense. Because why? Because they're women. And that is what women do. They get hysterical. They're the ones that are going to believe this stuff about a walking Savior who just died three days ago. You see, in Luke's day, people didn't tell stories of valiant women. They told stories of valiant men, and the women were just the supporting cast that were utilities for the story. I don't know if you heard this week, but uh, Jordan Peele gave an interview. Uh, He's the African-American director, comedian first, and then he uh, has directed two recent uh, critically acclaimed blockbusters. And so he has a lot of Hollywood clout. He can basically kind of write the next movie that he wants, and then Hollywood's going to fund it. And he was asked, how do you as a black man intend to use this power? And will you have white dudes in your movies? Because this last one was about a family, and it was an African-American family attacked by another African-American family. And so it wasn't a diverse cast. And uh, he said that he wasn't likely to cast a white dude, at least in a, a leading role in his movies. And predictably, white dudes all over, the, all over Twitter went berserk. How can you say that? But he went on to say, look, I've got nothing against white dudes, but I've seen that movie. That movie's been made a million times, and I want to make a different movie. Luke, you see, sits down to write his gospel, and he says, I'm not casting men in leading roles. I've seen that movie, as it were. Now, I'm overplaying that just slightly because obviously there's a lot of dudes, there's a lot of maleness in all of the Bible's narrative. There's Peter and there's John and there's Jesus in the narrative at the very center But while men in this narrative get the most screen time, they're the ones that are at the front of the stage that are doing most of the dialogue, as would be expected in this day and age, there's a subtext. And there's other actors that, depending on your point of view, might be telling the real story. 
that you have to look into, you have to look beyond what's front and center to actually see. Because in a world where women were just utilities to a male-centered world, they were property. They were there to make babies, to make heirs for their husbands. They were easily discarded if they didn't provide that or disappointed their husbands. Luke tells a story about a young girl, maybe 14, risking abandonment by her family, which is tantamount to starvation and death, risking her life to give birth to the Messiah. He tells a story of the women standing by Jesus at the cross where the men leave. He tells the story about women bearing witness to the resurrection and then running to tell the disciples about it and to tell them what they need to do. I mean, this is just unheard of in this culture, in this patriarchal religion. You see, there's a story that everyone's heard before, and then there's a new story. There's a story sort of behind the story. There's a subtext that really is important to understand. But to get it, to be able to see the subtext, you've got to first shed this prideful religious demand that any religion worth following must have me at the center. Over and over, friends, in the Gospel of Luke, it's not persons of power and wealth. It's not people of the right gender people of the right ethnicity who get it, who get salvation, but who is it? It's lepers, it's the sexually compromised, it's the exploited Samaritans, tax collectors, eunuchs. It's centurions, it's women. And Luke is telling this story that pride so easily helps us, makes us miss, that pride shuts our ears to. Because when we're sitting at the top of the ladder, we don't want a religion that tells us that the way up is to go down. It is to give up our rights. Just like Jesus said a few chapters earlier in Luke 18, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy white Westerner to enter the kingdom of God. That may not be your translation, but that's what the Aramaic really says. Just trust me, I went to seminary. It's there. If you, friends, inhabit the richest nation on the face of the earth, if you speak a language and use currency that dominates world commerce, no matter, almost no matter where you go, if you inhabit a racial group that dominates art, education, politics, religion, theology, you name it, the likelihood that you are going to pick up the gospel and read it correctly is very low. The likelihood that we're going to miss the main point sitting in this room is really high. And I don't know your story, and some of you may not be, may not have grown up in this context. Maybe this is new to you, but for most of us, most of us are going to miss the main point if we don't read carefully, if we don't inspect the blinders that pride puts on our eyes and our ears. 
what Luke is trying to tell us is that markers of power, markers of societal standing, markers of wealth, markers of religious belonging, markers of theological correctness, they cultivate a deep spiritual blindness that we call pride. That without a deliberate, without an intentional, without a continual act of dispossession, of identifying and getting rid of those cultural blinders, of actively divesting ourselves of those cultural, those national, those moral mythologies about ourselves and our own rightness, pride will keep us moving through life, denying our own neediness, closing the very entryway to the gospel. The whole story, as we saw during our Being Well series, started with our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, doubting that God's goodness was experienced in naked weakness. They doubted that. So they denied their dependency upon Him, and they tried to master their own fate, master their future and their own destiny. And what those early chapters tell us is that it killed them but it didn't lead them to life. And that sort of pride never does. It never leads to the life that God wants to give us. And that's why pride is called a a deadly sin, because it leads to more and more dying. When we construct a life that's designed to rid ourselves of the thought of our own dependency, we miss Jesus and we miss real life. Because salvation is accomplished in weakness, and it can only be received in weakness. And so it means rejecting all of the messaging, the the artifice, the cultural markers that say to us, we're number one, that move us up, and in a zero-sum world, move someone else down. And so, of course, we have to protect our status. Of course, we're threatened by other countries that might be growing in prominence, because what does that say about us and the mythology that we've lived by? Instead, we need to try to read the story again and identify with the right characters, because most of us in the white Western world, we don't need to identify with the thief and the centurion and the women We need to, are you ready for this? We need to read the story and identify ourselves with with Pilate, with Caesar, with the Sanhedrin, with the religious Pharisees that close out Jesus' message because of what it says about them and how it undermines their whole lives and their reason for being. In conclusion, the... There's a great uh, series on NPR, I don't know if you've heard of this, called StoryCorps, where they have two or three people tell the stories of their lives that are important to them, and it's only three or four minutes, uh, but then they log it in the uh, archives of the Library of Congress, and one of them is called Tim's Place, and it's the story of a restaurant named for a grown man, Tim, who has Down syndrome. And he had everything, all these experiences that you would expect of a guy with Down syndrome growing up 
uh, in the 70s and 80s. He was called names. He was laughed at. Everything was stacked against him. The ceiling for his dreams was, you know, so much lower than everyone else's. He was an outsider in just about every single way. And his dad talks about his doubt, his own doubt, about whether he could be a good parent to Tim, which is probably why he was such a good parent, is that self-reflection. But Tim says, Dad, you are the most loving dad ever, and Mom too. You guys are my superheroes. And having you in my life, that makes me special. Friends, you're special not because of the tribe that you inherit, not because of the theology system that you happen to ascribe to, not because of the nation you grew up in, not because of the color of your skin, not because of your behavior and how you're more moral than the person next to you, but because Jesus wants to include you in his story. Jesus looked upon you and he had mercy. Jesus looked upon you and he said, I will go to the cross for you. I will go to death so that you can have life. That's what makes you special. Let's pray. Father, I pray that more and more we would lean into this story, that we would read it with the right eyes and hear it with the right ears, and that you would help us to, as a community, identify those barriers that we have just by virtue of living in our particular community, but also those individually, those things that we cling to with desperation because they they tell us we're something. They tell us we're more than someone else. And I pray that as we come to this table that we would see that what makes us something, what gives us belonging is you and this meal. And I pray that we would enter in through your body and your blood. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.